You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Okay. Got a new microphone, I see. Well, you broke the last one. Yeah. So, uh, the, the sheer power of my voice broke the last one. You know, I was thinking about that as I was setting this equipment up today uh, in what I can only describe as a new but equally experimental setup. Uh, since I'm still over here using the same old pile of trash mic I've had since we started this thing 257 episodes ago, and I was thinking, that bastard, Ben Folks gets a new microphone because he broke the old one. Because I overwhelmed the old one, is what you're saying. Swarmed on it. Now I have kind of an unfair advantage over you. Swarmed on it with the power of your half-baked ideas. <laughs> it's true that microphones can only tolerate so many half-formed ideas. How do you feel over there? Do you feel more free? Because now, I'll I tell you what, I bought these tabletop microphone stands, and I instantly regretted it. So, uh... Really? I like the tabletop I mean, microphone. it feels great for you and I. I just have a feeling that people at home are going to be listening to us typing and, uh, you know, absentmindedly drumming our... Yep, there you go. Typing away. Absentmindedly drumming our fingers on the table and stuff like that. So, uh... Man, I hope this doesn't interfere with my ability to eat snacks during the podcast. I... I can't go snackless for, like, the entire hour and a half it takes us to record this damn thing. Well, I know you're not going to let that stop you. No. You're still going to be snacking away over there. Everyone else will have to make some adjustments. I won't lie to you. Anyway, here we are. New uh, new hardware and all. Ready to go. I assume you feel very free over there, not no longer having a mic stand. Uh, I can just do this with my elbows. Yep, looking good. Yeah. Throwing elbows over there. Throwing bows. Get used to it, people. This week, the episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by the men's grooming geniuses at Fulton and Rourke. It's about summertime, y'all. You know what that means. It's about time for the summer clothes, maybe a sharp new summer haircut, and for the well-rounded fight fan, how about a new summer fragrance? Ben, tell them what we're talking about. Well, Chad, as the weather heats up, our pals over at Fulton & Rourke are recommending their solid cologne, Captiva. It's formulated with green citrus, wild rock rose, and salt water to provide a clean, fresh scent that makes a perfect choice for those long, hot summer days. I hear the uh, wild rock rose mixes well with the smell of... 50 SPF sunscreen and hot dogs cooking on the grill. Intoxicating. If you want to get yourself smelling like Captiva before all the cool kids hit the beach this year, just go to FultonandRourke.com and use the promo code THECME, all one word, at checkout to save 50% off your, oh, 15%. I'm sorry. I don't want to yeah. get Fulton and Rourke in some hot Calm water. Calm down. Calm down, I'm writing, My ass is writing, my mouth is writing checks that I don't know if Fulton and Rourke can cash over here. <laughs> 15%. Off your first purchase. That's an exclusive offer for you, our listeners. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com and the promo code, the CME, all one word, for 15% off your first purchase. So 1-5. 1-5%. We got music again this week from our guy, Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. Thanks to him for that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at SoundCloud.com slash DBeats7. That's Beats with a Z. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Stipe Miocic moves one step closer to making UFC heavyweight history and now 100% ensures that a refrigerator will fall on him while he's doing that kitchen remodel. And in round number two, so some of you hipsters are going to start pretending like you don't like Joanna Jacek, huh? Man, that is stupid. And in round number three, the good news is school's almost out for summer. The bad news is Jorge Masvidal just spent 15 minutes getting fitted for this new Damian Maya signature backpack, and now he can't get it off of him. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Howard Webb. Is that uh, famous English soccer referee Howard Webb? Did you Google that? That's right. Now, we apparently, we have to do this now to make sure that we're fielding all the right questions from all the right uh, European football stars. 
Or maybe it's just some person named Howard Webb. That's How are we to know? Not How are we though, to know, Chad? Not as though Howard Webb is an unusual name. No. So uh, let's see if he makes the right call here. Nice. Shall we? I see what you did there. Did you see old man Edgar beat some discipline into youth prospect Yair Rodriguez? It was like watching a rogue student get taught a lesson by his PE teacher. So was this the right move by the UFC? Yes, Yair is young enough to bounce back, but it has halted his momentum a fair bit. Uh, where do these two guys go now? Well, Ben, last week on the podcast, we talked a little bit about what seemed uh, to be a quizzical matchmaking decision here to, to put hot top prospect Yair Rodriguez up against the old man, Frankie James Edgar, former lightweight champion, longtime men's featherweight contender. And I got to tell you, after watching the fight, I have even more questions about how this came about. I know on the broadcast, uh, and I didn't know this leading up to a UFC 211, but they said that this was a matchup Yair Rodriguez asked for. Yeah. He thought he was going to go out there and punch his ticket against the old man. Uh, didn't work out that way. But still, man, uh, now that we've actually seen the lopsided nature of this matchup, it feels, and I guess hindsight is twenty twenty, but in this case, foresight may have been twenty twenty two. This seems like an even worse idea now that we've seen it. But see, I don't have a problem with the idea that you you found out where he was by putting him up against tougher and tougher competition until you run up against whatever his limit is at this time. Like, I don't think in MMA that ruins you. I think that you can you can have a loss at 24 to a former goddamn UFC champion like Frank Frankie Edgar, and people are not looking at you like suddenly you suck and we've got no use for you anymore. I think you put him back down against somebody else that he can flying jump knee in the face, and they're going to be into it again. Like, I don't think that this ruins anything uh, for Yair Rodriguez, and I, in fact like that the UFC is willing to do these matchups rather than just taking every possible prospect they have and guarding them like a precious little egg. Well, I mean, I don't know that you necessarily need to go the full boxing route and, and serve up young prospects 20 cans until they're 20 and 0 and then have them fight for the title. But I I think that there's a, a happy medium somewhere in between, uh, you know, but didn't we, you make that thing? Didn't you make it hard on yourself if you UFC after you did the BJ Penn fight? Like, how do you go from BJ Penn to like the number twelfth ranked featherweight in the world or something? Well, I mean, that, the name value. Everyone knows what BJ Penn's deal is now, man. They know that Yair Rodriguez just beat up the ghost of BJ Penn, beat up BJ Penn's uncle out there in his last fight. And one of the things about matching him up with Frankie Edgar on the heels of that BJ Penn matchup is that if I were the old man Frankie Edgar, I would have taken off my spectacles, folded up my newspaper, and thought, is this what they think of me now? Sure. They think I'm the next BJ Penn? And I would have got my ass in the gym and trained for for this fight and probably would have come out there and squashed Jay or Rodriguez in two rounds, having the doctor call it off because we're worried about his eye. That's what I would have done <laughs> if I were the old man. That's what you would have done? And that's what It's very I'm, specific. What I'm saying is, and I understand what, you, what you're saying, and I don't think that it's wrong-headed. I think in, in mixed martial arts, you can battle back from a loss like this. And I think Yair Rodriguez will battle back from this loss. But I got to think that there's a Jeremy Stevens or an Anthony Pettis or a, a T-City Brian Ortega out there that would have made more sense for Yair Rodriguez than trying to jump him up to the number two ranked featherweight in the world in Frankie Edgar right off the bat. And the thing that still kind of needles me about it, Ben, is that this is a fight that UFC didn't have to make. It's not like we were all buying front row tickets at UFC 211 being like, well, we got to get Yair Rodriguez back out there. You know, we're dying to see him after he just beat up BJ Penn. And I don't know who's, who, who needs to, 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 you know, accept the blame for that, whether or not it's you at the UFC matchmakers or your Yair Rodriguez or his handlers. But it seems to me like you could have done a little bit more to ensure that you didn't halt the young fellow's pro, uh, momentum all the way around. Yeah, sure. Because he looked terrible in this fight. I wouldn't say he looked terrible. Well, he but... didn't look terrible, but he looked like he got his... He got it handed to him. He got worn around like a button by 36-year-old Frankie Edgar. I mean, he found out a glaring weakness that he needs to work on. We all saw it. And I don't necessarily think that that's always a bad thing. Uh, you know, it's a rough way to learn that lesson. Uh, your your eye is going to take a while to get back to normal after something like that. But, you know, I I don't think that it's catastrophic at all, and it doesn't make me think that uh, the UFC was completely off their rocker for even making this fight. Because I think if you go from, like, having him beat up BJ Penn in a showcase fight to then turning around and being like, all right, now it's Yair Rodriguez versus Darren Elkins. Like, I don't think people are going to be into that. 
I think you kind of painted yourself in the corner a little bit by giving him a, such a big name, even if it's, you know, the name has outlasted the man at this point uh, with BJ Penn. After that, you do you have to give him somebody who seems like they matter and, and matters right now rather than mattering in the future. Um, and honestly, I think, like, I can get more into seeing him against a former champion who we're still, we're always trying to wonder if he still has it, then against a guy like your guy T-City, Brian Ortega. Because you know when you, the UFC has learned a lesson about you take two hot prospects and match them up against each other, somebody got to lose. Uh, and, you know, you lose to Frankie Edgar, I think we all realize there's no real shame in that. Maybe you get better as, re, as a result of that. I would have rather seen pretty Tony Pettis out there. Speaking of former champions that you're constantly wondering if they still got it. Well, there's, there's a guy, yeah, at least you don't have to worry so much that he's going to take you down and just elbow you in the eye over yeah, and over again. seems like a slightly more advantageous matchup for your guy, Yair Rodriguez, instead of putting him out there against uh, arguably the worst possible matchup of styles in the entire division for what he's trying to do. Meanwhile, you got pretty Tony Pettis sitting at ringside, dressed like he's dressed like a character from the denouement of Scarface, and he just gets <laughs> flat ignored by the UFC broadcast team when they cut to... Uh, him sitting next to Cowboy Cerrone, and uh, who else was he sitting next to? There was three fighters there. Oh, he's got a fight coming up there. He's fighting Jim Miller this summer, right? So I'm telling you, rewind the whole thing. Next question this week comes from Katie Bell from Hogsmeade. Did you Google that one? I did Google that one. Does she seem real? It's a Harry Potter character. God damn it. I'll keep it simple. I wanted to make a few points about the Poirier versus Alvarez calamitous controversy. First of all, the first knee wasn't legal because the new rules weren't being used in Texas, but why is that? And will it ever change? However, if you look closely, that knee landed on the hand, not the head. Uh, no part of it hit the head, just the hand covering the head. Does that matter? Secondly, I thought you said you were going to keep this short. Hog, Hog Katie Perry from Hogsmeade. <laughs> Secondly, is there such a thing as a non-accidental foul? Very few pro MMA fighters are trying to get disqualified, so why isn't it still a DQ? It's not rock and science. It's not transfiguration. So why can't they just sort this shit out? And why is it always in Texas? Um, okay, let's, let's talk first about the, that first knee, right? Uh, because that is a, a good point that I noticed as well. You know, he has one hand down. He's using the other hand to cover his head. Uh, his knee is not down yet. Eddie Alvarez knees him and knees him basically right on the hand. Um, so it doesn't actually make contact with the head. However, I mean, you could make the argument for one thing that just because somebody thwarts your attempt, your blatant attempt to hit them with an illegal strike, that doesn't necessarily put you in the clear. Also, if you're getting kneed in the hand while your hand is pressed right up against your head, you know, you're still, it's not doing your head any favors. And yet at the same time, like, haven't we seen guys where it looks like the only thing that's separating them from a blatantly illegal kick and not is that they go to kick somebody who's on the ground or just getting up and they miss. And we've seen that in several fights and they don't, you know, they don't even really get so much of his admonishment. So, I mean, I, I actually, I sent uh, big John McCarthy a text asking him if he had any clarification. I hadn't had not heard back from him as of this recording, but it does seem like a gray area there. Yeah, I think on one hand, we're getting very, with this uh, whole downed opponent rule, we're getting very close to trying to define what a catch is in the NFL. Should be a very simple rule, and yet it seems as though no one can figure out exactly what it means to, to possess the football in the NFL, keep changing the rule. Kind of starting to feel the same way about having these these downed opponents now. And and, and to make matters worse, in, in mixed martial arts, the unified rules are no longer unified, right? We got some right. states using the, the new rule uh, where I think the intent of the rule was that you got to have your whole palm down, even though, as we talked about a week or two ago, the way it's written makes that very much unclear. Uh, and then you got the old rule where if you just have your fingertips down, you're good. Uh, and if we're going to start trying to legislate whether or not the illegal blow landed on your head or your hand, well, then we're going to have to goddamn go to instant replay. There's just no, there's no other way uh, to expect a referee to make that call in real time. Uh, and I think that that's a legitimate question, too, because, you know, I, I think we had uh, in an Anderson Silva fight, maybe it was when he fought Chael Sonnen. The second time, yeah. Yeah, and it looked like he tr maybe tried to knee him in the face when he was down, but ended up just kneeing him square in the middle of the chest. Uh, and so, you know, if the intent is there to knee someone in the head, you probably, you know, that that's probably a foul, but if it doesn't land on the head, 
I, I don't, it's probably not a foul. I don't know how that, I don't know how you legislate that, frankly. Well, and I think we get into a tricky area just generally trying to assess intent with some of these, which, right, which we ended up trying to do. Yeah. Right? And that, that gets us to the second part of, uh, Katie bell from hogs meets question, uh, which is, is there such a thing as a non-accidental foul? Because the, the ruling that Herb Dean made there was that Eddie Alvarez did not mean to knee him in the head, that it wasn't a, an accidental foul, except you can't argue that he wasn't trying to hit him with the knee. He's definitely trying to hit him in the knee, hit him with the knee in the head. You know, the second knee really takes away all the doubt uh, about the first one where he has the hand there because the second one, his knee is all the way down, and then he goes ahead, Eddie Alvarez goes ahead and throws that knee and lands it right behind the ear and just drops Dustin Poirier face first on the mat. You know, he's definitely trying to knee the guy in the head. You can make the argument, like, because of where his head was, because of where Eddie Alvarez's head position was, maybe he couldn't tell that uh, Dustin Poirier was down. Maybe he was still woozy from nearly being knocked out himself um, and wasn't totally aware of everything that's going on. But at some point, we got to say that that doesn't matter that much because unless you want to say that the only way you can get disqualified is if you see a guy down, you take a step back, twist your mustache, give an evil smile, and then knee him square in the face, then we're basically saying you can almost never get disqualified for an illegal strike this way. Just telegram your attentions in ahead. Yeah, or yeah. You, if you turn and look at your corner and be like, watch this shit, and then you turn right around and knee him in the head. I mean, that, like – I, I don't understand. I can see accidental being like, I'm trying to kick him in the leg. He moves and I kick him in the balls. Like, okay, we've seen that a lot. Or, you know, I'm trying to knee him in the body. And like, as I go to throw the knee, he drops down to where it illegally knees him in the head. Okay. But like this one, you're in a kind of like stalemated position there and you're trying to knee him in the head and you do. And he's down when you do it. I think that you've got to consider that. Like, I don't really understand how under what definition of the word accidental that that counts. Right. It kind of seems like uh, the environmental factors, you might say, matter a little bit too much sometimes in trying to legislate that. And by that, I mean, you got Eddie Alvarez, a a well-liked veteran out there in a high-profile fight. It kind of seemed like we would have thought it was a bummer to DQ Eddie Alvarez. Right. Especially since Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier were having a real crackerjack of a fight here before these these fouls occurred, uh, and it just kind of felt like we're gonna we're gonna call this a no contest because it's the it's the best thing we can do in a bad situation, but it which was, is fine. But in, in terms of enforcing the rules, that's not you're yeah. not you're not doing much there. But it was going to be an unsatisfying ending either way because right. the fight was going to be over. Right. Like whether you call it a no contest or a disqualification. And one of the things you have to consider is now, you know, Dustin Poirier uh, and his people are saying they're going to appeal to the, the no contest because he wants his win money. And you can understand why he would feel that way after that. You know, the fight ended through an illegal strike that was no fault of his own. Uh, and then you're, you're basically money-wise treating him as if he had lost the fight. So I don't blame him for being upset and wanting to do something about that. So it's not as if that you know saying like, and it is a very MMA thing of us to say like, okay, no contest. We'll let's we're confused. We're not sure what to do. Let's just act like it didn't happen. The same way we've been known to do on right. like many fouls on occasion. Like let's just move on. Let's just let's just stop and, and admit we have no idea and then move on. Yeah, we're vastly approaching the point where I think we have to admit that this entire rule is just flawed. Don't you think? Yeah, uh, but I mean. We're not dealing with the new rule now, and right, it wouldn't I mean, have mattered if we the, were. The concept, and I, and I don't know if you want to go ahead and legalize kneeing a downed opponent. I, yes, I, I, that's I, what I want to do. I mean, I think you probably should, but I think you've got a better chance of seeing the resurrection than seeing us go <laughs> that way here in America. But at the same time, like, you got to do something about this downed opponent rule because you you either got to legalize all, you know, kneeing a downed opponent or you need to... to change the rule so that the position of the downed opponent is so goddamn clear that there can never be any question. Like I'm talking hands and knees. Like, and if you want to try to save yourself from being in a bad position uh, by putting yourself in arguably an even worse position, that's up to you. But this thing with fingertips or palm and three point stance, it's not working. It's, it's causing problems. Right, but that second knee would have been illegal under any known uh, permutation of the unified rules. Sure, right? I'm just talking in general. I'm yeah. not necessarily even talking about 
Uh, Alvarez versus Dustin Poirier. Right. The last thing about that is when Herb Dean is clarifying like what he's going to do, and we can hear, we can see him on camera, we can catch him on the microphone. He goes over to talk to Mark Ratner. Yeah. He doesn't talk like I don't know if there was anybody from the Texas, Texas Commission that's present, but it's not a good look for the referee to go over to a an executive who works for the promoter. And I understand Mark Ratner has a lot of experience in this. Yeah. Like has a lot of like you know, except that we've known him to get on the microphone and be wrong about what the rules are when in that role that he has of like kind of clarifying the rules. But to go over there to the promoter and it sounds a lot like Herb Dean is saying, "Here's my thinking. Here's what I want to do. Is that okay with you?" which is not something you should ever be doing as a referee. Right, yeah. And I do think, and I agree with you, that that's that was a bad look right there. Uh, and I do think, if we can give both guys the benefit of the doubt, that it sounded like Herb Dean was checking with Mark Ratner because he does have a lot of experience in that. And it sounded right. like, you know, is that okay with you? I think what he meant was, is that the right call? Not right. necessarily, is that okay yeah, with, I, I agree. with Ari Emanuel? Yeah, right. Uh, right. But it, I, I agree with you that like it looks the optics are bad. What if what if Mark says no? What if Mark is like nope? I don't I don't think we, I think that uh, we want to see uh, Dustin get the DQ win here. Right, and on top of that, I think everybody sitting at home hearing Herb Dean explain that to Mark Radner was like nope, that's wrong. And so then Mark Radner didn't say no, which, like you said, it probably would have been quite awkward had he wanted to say no. But at the same time, uh, the way that we react to that at home is is kind of in in shock and awe that like yep they're they're gonna do the wrong thing here they're gonna yep there they go they're doing the wrong thing which seems to happen a lot and i'm sure many people watching at home just thought he was conferring with a commission member did not realize who that was next question this week comes to us from gay jesus (laughs) at least we don't have to look that one up have to look that guy up anthony johnson said in an interview that he was never a fighter and spoke vaguely about his endeavors outside of the mixed martial arts all signs for Rumble are pointing to the medical marijuana industry. Rumbleweed? Now that's how you capitalize on a goddamn nickname. I can't help but think that some other talented young fighters might catch wind of this and give it a go themselves, particularly a pair of brothers uh, like Johnson seem to dislike fighting for money. Uh, Does Sage Northcutt have a brother that I don't know about? Yeah, I mean, um, he's I'm talking about G- Who he could be Jim asking. Miller and, and Dan Miller? Yeah, gotta be Jim and Dan Miller. What do we think about this move, Ben, for Anthony Johnson? Uh, First of all, is Rumbleweed made up here by Gay Jesus, or is Anthony Johnson brilliant enough to have come up with that? I, well, because I, that is awesome. I don't think we've gone far enough down that road yet to know exactly what Anthony Johnson's plans are here. I hope that it is branded Rumbleweed and not that I'm going to like provide security for a, a medical marijuana dispensary grow operation, Yeah, which seems like I could you could tell me either of those things were true, and I would believe it. You know, uh, obviously he's not – he wouldn't be the first fighter to think that the transition out of fighting should go straight into selling weed. Uh, we've seen that from a couple different fighters and even one MMA referee. But – and I think, you know, it, no pun partially intended, it is a growth industry right now. Um, I might feel a little bit iffy about staking my – uh, future after MMA on weed, whether medicinal or otherwise, while uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is trying to roll everything backwards in terms of our national drug policy. Yeah, that is exactly what I was going to say. I think on one hand, we can all uh, applaud Anthony Johnson at 33 years old, uh, I guess, for for feeling like he saw the writing on the wall and, and deciding he wasn't going to accept any more head trauma uh, to become like a mid to second tier Uh, light heavyweight in the UFC, but this seems like a strange career move to me just considering the current political climate. Like, this isn't necessarily the time that I would choose to dive headfirst into uh, legal legal weed, throwing... But I mean, we're talking about a a professional athlete who already, you know, tried to become a professional fighter, so it's not like like, uh, the choices are medical marijuana dispenser or... You know, architect architect right exactly uh, that's not the kind of decision we're making here would it surprise you to learn that maybe anthony johnson missed the story in the times this weekend about uh jeff sessions regressive uh drug policy it would not surprise me it would not surprise me at all just saying it would also not just surprise me to find out that anthony johnson voted for it all right where are we at here uh next question comes to from josh from virginia 
pretty safe. <laughs> this past week, Dana White called an end to the litany of continued press conferences and stare downs that served as a marginally effective substitute for a middleweight title bout between George St. Pierre and Michael Bisping. I, and apparently everyone else whose name doesn't rhyme with cycle disc thing, uh, think nice. re- <laughs> uh, feel reasonably confident that the Cuban cookie monster will likely serve as uh, Deuce, uh, Dos Ex Machina for the Englishman's title What range. did you say? I don't know. Deus Ex Machina? There you go. Uh, Come but, on, man. But what does this mean for GSP? Is this part of a plan to appease Anderson Silva by throwing him the super fight that never happened? Does Rush go after uh, Tyron Woodley, Damian Maya winner? I mean, hashtag would watch, but what's the ideal scenario here? Uh, we were just talking a couple weeks ago about how are we really going to wait eight months for George St. Pierre versus Michael Bisping? Now the answer apparently is no, which to me at least seems like the right move from a matchmaking perspective. How firmly do you believe that answer that when Dana White says you know what we're not doing that screw that we're no one's waiting that long now it's Yoel Romero versus Michael Bisping doesn't that sound to you like maybe that's meant to like nudge George St. Pierre to get ready a little quicker holding the holding his beautiful feet to the fire a little bit (laughs) uh yeah that's a good point I mean I I guess my answer to that is that it depends how firmly George St. Pierre is going to hold on to this uh notion that he's not fighting until after October. Right. Well, that seems like what this is meant to find out. Like, because you, you, you can't tell me that if George St. Pierre comes to Dana White this week and is like, all right, you know what? I thought it over. I could I could do early August. Yeah. I, late July, early you know August. What? I, I could got, rush it. I got on the scale uh, and I'm I'm closer to 185 than I thought. Yeah. I, I skipped breakfast this morning and now I think I could do it. You're not going to be, you're not going to tell me that Dana White's going to be like, nope, sorry, I already told you Yoel that it's his, so we got to figure out something else for you. Uh, no, like this seems to me like, like the same bluff that Michael Bisping was trying, but this seems like with something real behind it, because right. Dana White could actually do that. From a monetary standpoint, though, don't you make more money if you could, like hypothetically, if you could book... GSP versus Anderson Silva, Michael Bisping versus the Cuban cookie monster, Yoel Romero, uh, and then Tyron Woodley against, you know, Damian Maya, who seems the, if he, if he can go, seems like now the, the heir apparent number one contender in that division, because that's three fights that you can make, which are, you know, reasonably good fights. Whereas if you sit around and wait eight months for Michael Bisping, George St. Pierre, that's one fight, right? Like you can find fights for all those other people, but those three fights that I just described seem to me like they ultimately make the UFC more money than waiting eight months for Michael Bisping versus George St. Pierre. Oh, definitely. But the UFC could also probably, you know, if unless there's some obstacle we don't know about to making it any of those fights, that was on the table the minute you heard that George St. Pierre was coming back and Anderson Silva was sticking around. I would think that, you know, it solves a lot of your problems at the same time. Like fans are really kind of a little more uh, sick of the whole money fight thing at this point. So I think that there's a lot more momentum behind seeing Michael Bisping actually defend his middleweight title against a middleweight contender. So that solves that. Anderson Silva's pissed off at you because, you know, he wants like this big fight. He wants you to create an interim title for him. Uh, all this stuff, you know, you give him GSP, which was a fight that he was open to back when it was a legit super fight because it meant, you know, fighting the smaller guy. And he was all for that idea uh, when they were both UFC champions, so maybe you appease Anderson Silva that way. You also, like you said, the, there's the money issue, which always important to the UFC. Um, George St. Pierre said he was going to fight a middleweight. Why not fight the one of the former middleweight goats? That's still a pretty big fight. He's still going to make a whole bunch of money. And welterweight, nothing interesting was going to happen there anyway, so you might as well go ahead and do T. Wood versus Demian Maya. Keep Woodley from wriggling out of that one in favor of a fight that's going to make him more money. Um, I don't know. Then you kind of you can put a, a, a like a hush upon this growing criticism that the UFC is just thinking for these short term uh, money fights rather than actually keeping the divisions working the way they're supposed to. Right. Yeah. This uh, this George St. Pierre return has taken a turn. Like, I would not have believed that in announcing his comeback from like his almost three year hiatus, we would be having a conversation where the underlying uh, uh, you know, tenor is, man, we're sick of talking about this George St. Pierre return. He needs to get his ass back and fight somebody. That just seems like, uh, 
It was bungled, frankly. <laughs> well, in retrospect, maybe not that surprising when you think of George St. Pierre and his very uh, deliberative nature. Yeah. That he's not the kind of guy to be like, I'm back, motherfuckers. Give me a fight Saturday. You know, he is the kind of guy who's like, remember how he always said that he would go up to middleweight uh, and maybe fight Anderson Silva, but he would need to take the time to to put on the muscle and nobody was really that interested in that. Um, so it's not that surprising, I guess, that a guy like that would be like, all right, I'll, I know what I'll do. Get the camera out. You know, like Jean Jean Paul, get the camera out, man. We're gonna shoot this video where I'm gonna call out Bisping's ass. Here we go. All right, name your date. Anytime after this coming October, my friend. Ha <laughs> ha, got him. Anyway, that's gonna do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event Podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can check out the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, the first time Stipe Miocic and Junior Dos Santos fought, it went 25 minutes and Junior Dos Santos emerged uh, with the unanimous decision victory. This time at UFC 213 this past Saturday, not so much. As Stipe Miocic goes out there, successfully crafts his second defense of the UFC heavyweight title when he wins by TKO two minutes and 22 seconds into the first round. Uh, this is good for Stipe, man. He puts himself on a very short list of dudes who have defended the 265-pound title successfully twice and puts himself on the cusp of being the first UFC heavyweight champion to successfully defend the belt three times, though I think in a move that will surprise absolutely no one, the sort of uh, meat-and-potatoes guy from Cleveland says he doesn't care about uh, the history books here. Do you believe that? I believe that's what he tells himself so that he can get ready for the fights. I think that that's a pretty common athlete mindset, right? Just to essentially put one foot in front of the other, worry about the stuff that uh, you can control and not not let the accolades and the uh, the all-time marks really cross your mind that much. Uh, Do you think, okay, let's say, for example, he goes out there, wins the next one, whoever that one will be against, uh, and everybody's saying, you did it, man, you did it. Is Do you think he then is like, you know, I said I didn't care, but honestly, this means a whole hell of a lot to me. This is a beautiful moment maybe, for me. Maybe. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me to find that out. But also, like, this is Stipe Miocic we're talking about here. Right. Like, the blue-collar firefighter from Cleveland, Ohio. I I could see this being the truth. It seems like he has, uh, while kind of a fun-loving disposition, sort of a... Uh, even keeled disposition, I would say. And so if you told me that legitimately his attitude is like, well, three ain't that many, uh, I would believe that true. as well. It is, yeah. And it's valid, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that makes it such a weird record to set is like, for one thing, it's the oldest title in the UFC. And that mark is so low. Like I, I looked it up and did like, you know, kind of a comparison across divisions. And the only other division where, you know, three consecutive title defenses would make you a goddamn legend is uh, men's bantamweight because it's only been around for like since like 2010. You know, and Dominic Cruz was hurt for a whole hell of a lot of the time during that. So, you know, that one kind of makes sense. But the fact that so many people have had a chance to break that just relatively unimpressive mark and nobody's been able to do it, it gets just weird at a certain point. We've talked before about how the correct answer to the question, who is the greatest UFC heavyweight or who is the greatest UFC heavyweight champion of all time, is essentially nobody at this point. If Stipe Miocic wins that next fight and has defended the title three times, does he become the greatest UFC heavyweight almost by default? Because I think we are all still at the point where that feels a little weird. It does feel weird, but I think that you have no choice. I, who because if it's nobody now like you can't make the argument that like because 
the belt was passed around so much and nobody was really able to hold on to it for any length of time, that that means there's no greatest. And also make the argument that once somebody does come around who's able to hold on to it, uh, he's also not the greatest just because we don't feel like he is. And that's like a like a perception problem around Stipe. And I'm not totally sure what it is because, I mean, I guess a lot of it has to be personality-based. Like because he is a nice guy and an even-keeled guy, as you say, and probably because he talks about 40% too fast, so you're never totally sure what he's saying at any time. Uh, people feel like there's nothing really to latch on to. Like they want that baddest man on the planet kind of aura, and he doesn't really give you that. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like it's not like he's winning boring fights or anything. Like they're all exciting fights. There's no real question who is winning those. I don't know what else you could really ask for, you know, between the air horns. Yeah. Uh, I think this, the Stipe Miocic persona is cool, personally. I can't, uh, I guess I, I can't really understand why people are so slow to kind of grab onto it. Cause I don't know that you could make the case that Stipe Miocic is like a big star for the UFC at this point or, or a big draw for the UFC, but like UFC heavyweight champion who is also an active firefighter seems like a, uh, a personality type that you could do some stuff with in terms of, you know, promoting him, getting publicity for him. I do think that you make the valid point that he needs to slow down a little bit when he's talking. Sounds just sounds like somebody's running a blender kind of <laughs> when Steve Amiocic is in there trying to talk on the mic uh, with Joe Rogan. These are the last, what is it? Five wins for Steve Miocic. Mark Hunt, TKO, Andre Arlovsky, TKO, Fabricio Verdum, KO, Alistair Overeem, KO, Junior Dos Santos, TKO. Now, I think you could make uh, the argument that some of those guys were maybe a little bit past their prime by the time Miocic got around to knocking them out, but that's a pretty impressive list, honestly. It is. Uh, how much of it do you think is, and I guess this will lead us into a conversation about the other side of this heavyweight title fight, uh, kind of the nature of the division. Because like Junior Dos Santos said, uh, I don't know if you saw his post-fight quotes, but it was kind of heartbreaking. He was talking about how his strategy of, of leg kicks was and, and battering Stipe's knee was really paying off. And how he was thinking to himself, this is working. I'm going to win. And then, you know, heavyweights. That's That was his quote. It was like, and then, you know. Heavyweights. So I don't remember anything after that, after feeling like I was doing really well. And it seems like fans have also adopted that general philosophy when it comes to the heavyweight division, where it seems like, I don't know, man, here's who I think might win, but anybody could win. Anybody could land one punch and win, uh, which also helps explain why the title is so hard to hold on to. Then does it become like if somebody wins three fights, okay, big deal. Like it's like saying – if you sit there and you throw a coin in the air and call heads three times in a row, it's probably not going to happen. But like enough, if enough people try that, it's going to happen for somebody. Like, do you need to get to like five or six before we start to take this shit seriously? Well, yeah. And not only was it just heavyweights, but it was, it was, it was kind of a weird performance for Junior Dos Santos. And I think that he is right and you are right to say that he it was doing well in the opening here. It looked like he broke Steve Miocic's leg uh, with one of those low kicks. He had a big. Uh, hematoma forming on the front of his shin bone. Uh, and it did look like Junior Dos Santos was, was working a good game plan. And then he just kind of put his back up against the fence and like stopped circling out of danger. And he might have got clipped. Maybe he was stunned. I don't know and not thinking clearly, but like it was kind of an anticlimactic knockout there at the end just because, uh, uh, it looked like, I mean, I think it was something we could all kind of see coming. Like once Junior Dos Santos stopped. Uh, using his mobility, stopped uh, trying to create that distance and, and, and stay in the center of the cage, I think uh, we all started to think, uh-oh, and then it happened, you know? And because heavyweights, it only took two minutes and 22 seconds for the whole thing to go down. Yeah, and I think that that just contributes to people feeling like, okay, that was you this time, it could be the other guy next time, so who who the hell knows? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that's why it makes me wonder if, if what people really need in order to buy somebody as the real heavyweight champion is not just the wins, but they need them to be like a Brock Lesnar type person where they seem like they're just like, you know, the, the ground is shaking when they walk in there. Right. Uh, and if they don't fight, if they don't have that, then it just seems like, OK, well, you're the heavyweight champion for now. Yeah. And then weirdly enough, like that is does seem to be the uh, 
the predominant view of Stipe Miocic, even though the guy has proven himself to be pretty damn good over that last, you know, five fight stretch or whatever. Uh, and we'll have to see what he can do to change that. If, it, if, uh, you know, if he fights Francis Ngannou next, or if, if, uh, you know, they were talking about a super fight with someone moving up from light heavyweight, uh, or if he just continues to pick off the, the old lions of the heavyweight division, uh, I don't know what it's going to take to, to change that perception of him. Uh, you want to do, are you fucking kidding me? One you thing got I, one more. One thing I would say to you, ask, or ask you before we do, are you fucking kidding me? Is say you had your your pick, you could fight anybody next. Who would you put in there against Stipe? Uh, I mean, Francis Ngannou is a is a pretty stellar fight, although uh, it almost feels a little premature. Like you'd want to see Francis Ngannou get one more win. Uh, it's interesting to think about what will happen after this John Jones Daniel Cormier fight, honestly, because uh, if if Daniel Cormier wins and then you got to do three fights with John Jones all to the good, I think that that's a trilogy no one is going to complain about. Uh, if John Jones wins, then you, you know, outside of the paper boy, Jimmy Manua, you don't have a ton of uh, clear cut challengers in that division. You don't have any real bankable challengers in that division. And you'll have a situation where both John Jones and Daniel Cormier are going to need something to do. Like, Sometimes I feel like we forget how good Daniel Cormier was as a heavyweight and that he didn't get chased out of that division. He left because his guy, Cain Velasquez, at the time uh, was the champion or was, was you know, very much in the mix for every championship fight. So uh, if you want to sell pay-per-views, I feel like John Jones against Steve Miocic would be as good as you could do. Uh, and then you got Daniel Cormier, who if he loses to John Jones, I would think either retires or thinks about going back up. So uh, I, I don't know, man. One of those two guys I feel like is pretty uh, enticing, as off the grid as it might sound. Yeah, I mean, I guess not that much more off the grid than like what the number like eight or nine ranked heavyweight uh, Francis Ngannou. Although at the same time, would watch Francis Ngannou versus Stipe. All right, now you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Okay, now we can do it. Ben, did you see, oh, I know you saw Michael Chiesa and Kevin Lee get into it. At the UFC summer kickoff press conference. Boy, did I. Michael Chiesa's out there uh, with his mullet and his blazer. So business casual up to the shoulders is what we're doing. <laughs> and Kevin Lee, man, just looking like an extra in like an early 90s new wave video. Uh, and not a throw, not afraid to slow uh, to throw down was Mr. Lee up there on that stage. We weren't going to do uh, the pushing and shoving baseball fight kind of thing you run at that man he is throwing a punch at you and we all found that out and while this seems super contrived and because like you know the don't don't talk about my mom almost seems like something they could have set up before the press conference my are you fucking kidding me i guess goes out to myself because man it's working on me (laughs) before i would have looked at this fight and said really we're gonna main event a ufc event well, is it in Detroit? Is that where this one's going down? I don't even know uh, that these guys are going to main event. Now I look at this card and I think, well, of course, Kiesa versus Lee is the main event. No other place you could put it on that card. You're not going to hide it on the undercard. This is a big money thing here. So I guess just because I have determined myself to be a simple creature, are you fucking kidding me that this I'm it's an internal. Are you fucking I'm kidding so me? deep in the game that and this shit is still working. You're looking at the man in the mirror and saying to him, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I am. Because seems like I should be above this. Also, if they did set that up, I would think you would want to set up a like an actual your mom burn before the guy freaks out about you mentioning his mom. Because all I really did was like, his mom's buying tickets, I know. And then he was just like freaked out, like, hey, don't talk about my mom. Which maybe you don't want to tell people what your trigger is that easily <laughs> in the sport, you know? Uh, my are you fucking kidding me? I don't know if you heard, but... Uh, Around all this UFC 211 stuff, uh, Dana White was asked, hey, what's up with that women's featherweight title thing you got going on? You got a champion, and nobody knows exactly what's up with her. Uh, and this is from the MMA Junkie story on it, because I feel it's important to get all the wording right here. Durandamy won't respond to MMA Junkie's inquiries about her future, nor will her management at Team Sucker Punch Entertainment. Even White wouldn't give a straight answer about what's going on, but told international reporters during a UFC 211 post-fight scrum on Saturday in Dallas that information regarding the Iron Lady isn't far from being released. 
I th- quote, I think we're going to come out with something soon about it, White said to TSN with a less than enthusiastic tone. You'll see. It's coming out, but it's not coming right now. Are you fucking kidding me? What's going on with Jermaine Duran to me? Either your hands hurt or it's not. Either you got to have surgery or you don't. Either you're ready to fight somebody and defend this title that you just won in, I guess, historic fashion, or you're not. It shouldn't be that difficult. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Can we just get this shit sorted? Jermaine Durandamy's hands is going to storm later. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, you went a champion went out there and did the damn thing again. He sure did. And this time, in a way... Maybe one of her most impressive title victories uh, because she faces an opponent in Jessica Andrade who clearly has some strength and aggression and the willingness to keep walking forward no matter what the hell is happening to her. Uh, she takes a little bit of early damage so it looks like a golf ball is trying to free itself from the inside of her skull uh, early on. And yet she just finds a way to absolutely pick her apart uh, and becomes more and more dominant as the fight wears on. The fact that it went the distance, I think, is kind of a credit to Jessica Andrade's toughness and her willingness to just keep coming no matter what. Um, so with this one, though, Jessica or Joanna Janjacek is now uh, one fight, title defense away from tying Ronda Rousey's number of women's UFC title uh, defenses. And it kind of already feels to me like maybe Joanna Janjacek is the greatest all-around women's MMA fighter. Or am I crazy? No, I wouldn't argue with that. I mean, uh, again, we're talking about uh, like defending the heavyweight title three times since women's MMA has only been on the big stage for a few years. It's not like uh, we're talking about a couple of centuries worth of history here. But, yeah, it's hard to think of someone maybe short of Chris Cyborg uh, that would even be in the running at this point skill-wise to top Joanna Jacek on an all-time great list, and if she goes ahead and passes Ronda Rousey with six, or ties Ronda Rousey with six consecutive title defenses and then passes her with one more, I don't know. Uh, It would be hard to make an argument against her, I think. Uh, And the sheer numbers in this thing were crazy. The uh, She threw 352 significant strikes or total strikes at Jessica Andrade, broke her own record for strike differential, uh, which sounds like a weird stat until you actually look at the numbers and realize that it means that Joanna Jacek, I believe, landed 144 more strikes than Jessica Andrade landed, uh, broke her own single fight record for leg kicks, uh, and is just gets more and more impressive, I feel like, every time we see her, which is kind of uh, uh, an interesting thing to think, considering that she's already been so dominant. But in this fight, as you said, you had the kind of like uh, bull in a china shop style offense of Jessica Andrade where she was just going to come throw forward and and start winging hillbilly haymakers out there. Uh, and Joanna Janjacek just outgunned her with technique, really, and, and really admirable, I thought, the way her style kind of blossomed as the fight went on. You know, she started with leg kicks and jabs, and then pretty soon that turned into uh, leg kicks and knees to the midsection and high kicks, and the jab turned into those pinpoint fluid punching combinations that she's got uh, and came away from this fight again looking like, well, who's going to stop her, right? Right. If, if uh, Claudia Gadella can't do it with with pure grappling, if Karolina Kovalkiewicz can't do it with kickboxing, and then powerhouse Jessica Andrade can't do it just with sheer uh, force and uh, uh, a refusal to quit, it's hard to see how you're going to stop Joanna Jacek at this point. Maybe Rose Namajunas and Stone Cold don't give a fuckness, since we saw that on display as she was sitting cage side. Yes, there with with uh, uh, was it with her Holly Holm? Uh, and I think it was uh, Shevchenko, right? Yeah, Valentina Shevchenko, and you know Holly Holm is a, a big smile for Holly Holm. Right. Uh, Valentina Shevchenko looking really happy to be there, fist pose and smile and everything, and Rose Namajunas looking like you know she was dragged out by her parents to like a a function that she doesn't want to be at, and she's not even going to pretend because she's an awkward teenager. Everyone doing their gimmicks. Uh, Rose Namajunas. We talked about this once before, but Rose Namajunas versus Joanna Jacek is the biggest strawweight fight you can make right now, and that's the strawweight fight that seems like it's on deck for the champion. Uh, and I I got to be honest, like I this. Everyone knows that I think we all like Joanna Jacek, 
But I walked away from this event being like, she feels like a star to me. Like every time I see her, she has this natural quirky charisma that I think sells well to the hardcore fan base. She is just as dominant as Ronda Rousey was, but in a totally different way. Uh, and I just, I, I feel like she deserves a similar promotional push than the one that the UFC once gave Ronda Rousey. Like, I feel like if the UFC gave the full might of the mythologizing and, and, uh, you know, PR push to Joanna Yajacek that it gave to Ronda Rousey, we might have something. You mean you need Joe Rogan to get out there and say how she's a once in a generation kind of athlete? I want a multi-million dollar trailer for a fight where she's leaning on the balcony in the Hollywood Hills just wistfully overlooking the city. Now, see, I also, I get the same feeling about she's super charismatic. Everybody who's inside the MMA bubble, it seems, uh, likes her, unless it's people like her so much that it's become a cool thing to dislike her. Which is happening, starting to happen, and that's how you know that Joanna Yajicic is has arrived. The people are starting <laughs> to be like, boring. I, okay, I don't get that. No, those people are wrong, but right. uh, they're out there. But... She does, you know, like, it's it's really difficult not to like her, and she feels really genuine in absolutely everything that she does. Uh, and I guess it feels like for a while now we've been waiting for the outside world to notice, and I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, it's, I mean, I got, and the reason that I say that I want to see her get that Ronda Rousey-style push is because I don't know how else we would know. You know what I mean? Like... It seems like such a completely unpredictable animal to know uh, that Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor and Brock Lesnar are going to be the MMA fighters that mainstream America cares about, and that's it, you know? And now, here's another point that goes along with that. You just named the mainstream MMA fighters that, that, that mainstream America cares about. You also named three people not really that interested in MMA fighting right now. Right, and that's a And there's a connection, I think, that when you – especially with Ronda Rousey and with Brock Lesnar, you know, Conor McGregor, I think he'll probably be back. But those other two, probably not. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the fact that they have other options. Uh, and Ronda Rousey, you can even point to at least some part of her decline in MMA and connect it to all the other stuff that was going on for her because – because she was a star. And Yuani Yanjaychik is kind of the exact opposite. It seems like the only thing she is interested in, the only thing she cares about is getting better at this. She right. seems like obsessive about it, which is one of the things that makes her so good at it. Uh, and a part of me is almost grateful, like almost grateful that people are not knocking on her door and asking her to, you know, reprise a, like to be a Tom Cruise character in a top all female Top Gun remake. Right. Because it leaves her alone to do this thing. You know, not distract her with any of that other stuff. Uh, it, it lets us have her, the, the people who really seem to appreciate what she can do uh, inside the MMA bubble and doesn't take her away and doesn't uh, distract any of the focus, which obviously happened to Ronda Rousey. So maybe it's, it's a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think one of the things that is so cool about her rise is that it feels more organic and authentic than what we got from the rise of Ronda Rousey. Like Ronda Rousey was obviously super dominant and beat the shit out of so many people. Uh, but it always kind of felt like Ronda Rousey was what the UFC wanted women's MMA to look like and act like. Well, yeah, and it's it feels, the only reason that convinced them to do women's MMA in the first place. Right. And so it feels like the UFC tried to shape women's MMA around Ronda Rousey. It feels to me like Joanna Yajacek has shaped the women's strawweight division on her own. Like, that sh that uh, she does not necessarily fit that mold of what they want to promote, but she is so unbelievably dominant that you can't help but uh, but want to see what happens next for her. And, that's, and I think that, like, if you are going to see if she has any kind of crossover appeal whatsoever, the time is now. It's right now, before she fights... Rose Nama Yunus, who is going to bring her own kind of charisma and her own kind of following to the table for this fight. Like, I feel like if you don't promote the shit out of this women's strawweight fight, you're going to miss the window. Well, and maybe this would be an opportunity to really test out that WME IMG star machine, which 
you know, investors were promised in some of those documents where it said, hey, yeah, hey, we can cut down the marketing budget for the UFC because we don't need it because we'll just leverage our own contacts in the industry. We don't need to spend a whole lot of uh, money getting people to realize who these fighters are and appreciate why they're important. We'll just call up our buddy uh, Conan or Stephen Colbert or something and get them on that show. And this would seem exactly like the kind of pairing on both sides that you ought to be able to do that with. So maybe this is will be a good litmus test because if you can't do it here, what can you do it with? Yeah, and like we've said a few times in the past, it seems like WME IMG has, has uh, made, taken steps to put women's MMA at the forefront almost at every turn since it took over the company last July. Uh, and it seems like if if that's going to be a priority for you, this is the fight that you want to do it for, especially since, like you just said a few minutes ago, women's featherweight is kind of a mess. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going on with women's bantamweight. I guess Amanda Nunes is going to fight uh, Valor- Valentina Shevchenko, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily seem like a fight that's going to blow anybody's doors off at the box office. And then women's flyweight is going to come in with uh, the next season of The Ultimate Fighter. But like, if you have a lull... Uh, it seems like this women's strawweight fight between Joanna Yajicic and Rose Namajunas is kind of the biggest thing you got going. No argument there. The path for victory for Rose Namajunas? Um, man, I I think we've seen a lot of paths to victory closed off by Joanna Yajicic. Um, I mean, I would say kind of getting in her face and trying to make it a brawl with her, but people have tried that one before, and she's yeah. pretty good at, at avoiding or you know getting that fight back to where she wants it. Man, I don't know. Yeah, if Nama Yunus is going to have an advantage, it's going to be on the ground, right? Don't you think? I mean, who have you seen successfully get and keep Yoanni and Jacek down on the ground? Well, nobody yet, and her takedown defense against Jessica Andrade was pretty darn impressive. Uh, and Claudia Gadella managed to do it for a round or two. Uh, but if you're Rose Nama Yunus, I would think you want to get this fight to the ground, and once you get it there, uh, you gotta you got to end it because 25 minutes later, you're probably not getting your hand raised if uh, anecdotal evidence suggests anything. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben unstoppable killing machine Damian Maya does it again goes out there and gets his seventh win in a row at UFC 211 against Jorge Masvidal a split decision uh, in a welterweight fight that UFC president Dana White told him through the cage after it was over earns him number one contender status and a shot at Tyron Woodley in the near future do you believe it I believe that that was something he was willing to say while the cameras were on and Demi and Maya standing right there looking him in the eye. Do you think the UFC president believed it when he said it? I think he believed that as long as no better options spring forth, that yes, might as well go ahead and do that. And options might be limited, Ben, at 170 pounds right now. You've got Stephen Thompson, who just lost in a rematch to Tyron Woodley that absolutely no one wants to see again. We're going to do Robbie Lawler versus Donald Cerrone, right? Which, hashtag will watch. Hashtag everybody will watch. Then you got Damian Maya at number three. Your other guys are Carlos Condit, who's kind of MIA right now. Uh, Moss Vidal, who just lost. And then you got a gaggle of people, Neil Magny, Dunyon Kim, Cerrone, Gunnar, Gunnar Nelson, etc., etc. Uh, unless you can bring George St. Pierre in to match up against Tyron Woodley at 170 pounds, Damian Maya is kind of the only guy at the club right now. What if Nick Diaz is like, you know what? Screw it. I've taken this recreational nunchucking as far as I can go with it. I'm ready to get back to fighting. Well, yeah, that cuts the line, right? So there, I mean, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about though. And I say, unless no better options, especially because if you're looking at what's going on with the, the middleweight title picture where Dana White's saying, that's it. George St. Pierre is waiting too long. Uh, we're going to give his title shot to UL Romero. Now that kind of frees up GSP. If you can't make a fight like GSP Anderson Silva, which we discussed, and GSP says, all right, you know what? I could probably be ready to fight at welterweight a lot quicker. Um, I'm not totally convinced that GSP is dying for that Tyron Woodley fight, but let's say that happens. Then, you know, 
the reassuring words Dana White uttered through the fence to Demian Maya don't amount to a hill of a beans, my friend. I think you know that. It kind of seems like Damian Maya might want to recommend that George St. Pierre and Nick Diaz both go over and help Steve Miocic with his kitchen remodel. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just kind of sew things up for himself. Oh, man. Can you imagine? Like, I see a Nick Diaz taking a supervisory role in that kitchen remodel. <laughs> yeah, wearing a visor. Yeah. Just kind of... Holding the plans. Wearing a visor and holding the blueprints. Like, you know, telling, telling Stipe what he thinks he ought to do here or whatever. General contractor, Nick Diaz. Take, D, Diaz Brothers Construction. Taking a lot of weird breaks out behind the shed. <laughs> Coming back all inattentive. What's he doing out there, man? Yeah. Uh, Damian Maya got himself into some hairy situations here against Jorge Masvidal. Uh, but once again, I think the overall impression of this fight is that even though you know what Damian Maya is going to do, and you can be super prepared for it, and indeed super adept at stopping it, like Jorge Masvidal, uh, and you still can't keep him from getting his way more often than not over the course of, of 15 minutes. However, knowing the physical attributes that Tyron Woodley brings to the table, if we did get Damian Maya versus Woodley for the 170 pound crown, would you be a little bit scared for your guy, the professor? Absolutely. It's like the worst possible matchup I can imagine for Damian Maya, just all the way around. A guy who you're not probably going to take down if you're Damian Maya. You're not just going to like you know, fall into half guard and, and then sweep him into an advantageous position. And he could knock your goddamn head off at any point in the fight. Um, I'm not saying I wanted to see Demian Maia get this title shot because I think he wins it, just because I think everything he's done uh, recently in the UFC merits at least a crack at it. And, you know, I think it's still... It, it's a fun, interesting matchup that I will be interested to see, and I will also be very worried about my guy Demian Maya in that matchup. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's hard to knock the results, man. Like I said, seven seven wins in a row. Uh, this Masvidal one was just a split decision, but at the same time, still pretty impressive. And then you got the stoppages over Carlos Condit and Matt Brown, and like I said, kind of a dearth of other guys who are hanging around uh, trying to get a crack at the 170-pound title if one of those uh quasi retired dudes doesn't show back up with a with a hankering to fight Tyron Woodley, which frankly is a tough matchup for any of those guys, right? George St. Pierre or Nick Diaz uh against Tyron Woodley, just considering what he brings to the table. Uh actually you know who I whose chances I like best in that? Probably Nick Diaz. Probably Nick Diaz. Uh I think Nick Diaz just pressures you, talks some shit to you, just keeps a constant barrage of uh punches coming your way and over five rounds, maybe you get tired. Maybe Nick Diaz just kind of wears you down and becomes welterweight champion. Yeah, I mean, especially when you consider how Tyron Woodley can sometimes grind to a halt when things aren't really going his way. You try to do that against Nick Diaz, and I don't think he's going to give you the Wonder Boy Thompson treatment where he's just going to stand there looking like he also doesn't know what to do. Nick Diaz is going to know what to do, and we all know what that thing is. And you take him down, you might just get go-go plotted and look stupid. What then? That's that's true, man. Then you lose a bet to Diaz Brothers Construction. Uh, <laughs> Jorge Masvidal, Ben, comes into this fight uh, sitting in a surprisingly advantageous place in the welterweight division after his three wins in a row, uh, most impressive of which was that TKO over Donald Cerrone in January of this year. Now he loses to Demian Maia. Uh, it felt like a surprise since we had we kind of felt like we knew what Jorge Masvidal had to offer going all the way back to the strike force days. Maybe we were surprised that he rose this high to begin with, but uh, what do you see in the future of uh game bread? I don't know. I mean, I feel like this one kind of dooms him to a certain mid-level hanging around status. I also feel like this one may be uh, established an unpleasant pattern for him. This is the fourth straight split decision loss that he said. Wow. He's a master of losing split decisions. Uh, and I think that that tells you something about his style, that uh, when people can get him into that kind of a fight, he ends up doing a little bit, not quite enough, but enough to f like feel somewhat justifiably aggrieved when it doesn't go his way. Uh, and... If you're hoping to force the UFC into giving you a title shot or giving you some huge fight, that's just not, not going to do it. You know, he, he just wasn't active enough when he needed to be in fights like this. And it's definitely not the first time you've seen that from him. 
Yeah, I think all that stuff is true. And I also think that there is a certain appeal still to Jorge Masvidal. Yeah. He seems like the kind of dude that the UFC would just want to have around. Uh, because even if he is losing all these split decisions, he's also a tough out for anybody in that division. Uh, and, and he gives you cool fights, man. He's got a little bit of Donald Cerrone, Robbie Lawler in him in that he's one of these guys that you can throw out there against almost anybody. And you know what he's going to do. You know what he's going to bring to the table. And it's kind of on the other person, uh, to dictate how the fight is going to go, what kind of fight they want to try to, uh, to face off with Jorge Masvidal with. So, uh, he does seem like one of those dudes that is probably not about to become the champion, but like one of those dudes that is going to constantly be around and available uh, and working his way into semi-big fights within the scope of that division, as long as he wants to do it. And the UFC does need guys like that, even if you wouldn't know it by the way the UFC acts about him. Right. All right, you want to do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, I'm just saying UFC 211, we saw... David Branch, who we you will recall, we put the, the call out for possible nickname suggestions for, for David Branch. He yeah. went out there. He got himself a split decision win over Christoph Jocko. Didn't exactly, you know, light anybody's hair on fire in this return, but, you know, keeps a, a winning streak going, gets a victory, uh, coming back to the UFC. I think now we got to consider what our options are. And so after many, many terrible tree puns mm -hmm. i'm just saying david the executive branch yeah we got a lot of uh a lot of people piping up for the executive branch uh, it's versatile it is it is versatile and it, i think it fits david branch uh i like it i'm gonna co-sign on it even though david the judicial branch seems to have a more apt double meaning after uh watching him grind this one out against christoph jotko I like the executive branch. Let's go with it. See, and if only if we weren't in the damn dull Reebok era, he could come to the cage in a suit carrying a briefcase. Yeah, a tear away suit. Yeah. And then rips off, breaks into a dance routine. I don't know if he would do that, but that's how I'm seeing it. You know, we can, we can workshop that part of the idea, but there are a lot of options is what I'm saying. Ben, this week, I'm just saying, we talked about it at length earlier in the podcast, but this whole knees to a downed opponent issue, so much of it, seems to stem from this idea that we need to stop MMA fighters from quote-unquote playing the game. And indeed, even Eddie Alvarez, after his fight with Dustin Poirier uh, this past weekend, said he thought that Dustin Poirier was quote-unquote trying to play the game, and so he was going to go ahead and knee him about his head and shoulders. Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm just saying, like, if you're going to have a rule that says you can't knee a fighter if he is in this three-point stance, what is so wrong with playing the game? Like, aren't you just using the rules to your advantage? Aren't you just doing everything you can within the framework of the rules to try to, uh, to try to get yourself into an advantageous position? Play the game, man. That's what I'm saying. Just saying this week. Well, I'm just saying in response to that, the thing that's so bad about it is you will get kneed in the fucking face and the referees will do nothing for you. Yeah. Problem with the rules, man. Problem with the rules. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it this week for the co-main event podcast. Uh, we will be back next week to break down all the stuff happening in the world of mixed martial arts. we got a couple weeks off now uh, before the next UFC event, but we will think of stuff to talk about. Things will happen. News will break. It will be fun. You'll see. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Did you notice uh, a lot of people coming to the table with... Uh, weird Waco, Texas Branch Davidian yeah. surprisingly popular for David Branch. Yeah. A kind of a, a mind-blowing number of people. I was not really thinking that we would go that way. No, it's surprising to me. Uh, Large-scale massacre.